Hello, and welcome to The Green Tunnel, a podcast on the history of the Appalachian Trail. My name is Mills Kelly, and I'm your host. Today, in the season two finale of our show, we're digging deep into the history of the trail clubs who worked tirelessly to maintain the Appalachian Trail. And speaking of maintaining, because of your support, the Green Tunnel has had nearly 100,000 downloads since we launched the series back in 2021. We hope you've enjoyed the show as much as we enjoy making it for you. Stay tuned later in this episode to learn how you can make your support go even further as we gear up production for Season 3. The Appalachian Trail is a pretty unique recreational resource. It began in the early 1920s as an entirely volunteer operation, and despite becoming a national park in 1968, it continues to be a volunteer project. The National Park Service exercises supervisory authority over the trail, but as far as I know, the AT is the only national park where the Park Service lets volunteers run the thing. When the trail project began, volunteer clubs up and down the length of the trail committed themselves to first scouting, then building, and then maintaining the trail. Volunteers built the shelters and their privies. They negotiated with landowners for easements for the trail's route. Those volunteers have relocated bits and pieces of the trail hundreds, if not thousands of times. They clear blowdowns, cut back poison ivy, pick up trash, educate hikers, and do a ton of trail magic. They even pick up and dispose of those incredibly annoying little green bags of dog poop left along the trail and at trailheads. The number of trail clubs has varied over time. These days, there are 30 clubs whose volunteers go out onto the trail on a regular basis to keep it in hiking condition for the rest of us. I've been one of those volunteers for more than a decade. At the moment, I'm the maintainer of the Manassas Gap Shelter in Northern Virginia, a job I've had for almost five years. Before that, I took care of a historic cabin in Shenandoah National Park, and before that was a trail maintainer. When I first began researching the history of the AT, one of the things I noticed right away was that the photographs of the trail club gatherings in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s were just full of women. In fact, women predominated in many of those old photographs but I struggled to find more information about many of those women and their roles in the clubs. For many women from especially the upper classes, it was kind of an opportunity for them to step out a little bit of, you know, traditional gender roles, but it was still kind of socially accepted for them to be part of these clubs, which did serve kind of a social club function, but also had opportunities for them to literally get out of the house and, you know, become more engaged in the community in different ways. That's Sarah Middlefeld, professor of Earth, Environmental, and Geographical Sciences at Northern Michigan University. Sarah is also the author of Tangled Roots, The Appalachian Trail and American Environmental Politics. There's lots of women in these pictures. They were out there, but not necessarily leaving a tangible voice behind that people could use. Kind of an interesting 
conundrum, I guess, for historians. Like, how do you put the voice of people who didn't necessarily leave those records into historical narratives? Women's involvement in civic organizations like trail clubs is not unique to the AT. In fact, their involvement has a long history, one older than the United States. Since the 18th century, women have been at the forefront of charitable relief, religious reform, and civic improvement efforts that have shaped American society. During the Revolutionary War, for instance, the Ladies' Association of Philadelphia sewed shirts for soldiers in the Continental Army. As Americans struggled with their chaotic experiment in self-government in the early years of the New Republic, they became a nation of joiners. Americans joined humanitarian, charitable, and other voluntary organizations by the thousands. They hoped to improve themselves and the nation. They created what historians now recognize as the beginnings of civil society in the United States, a constellation of organizations and institutions that stood in the space between the individual and the government. As one historian put it, this emerging civil society in the early republic was the major means by which Americans were able, to some extent at least, to tame and manage the near-anarchic exuberance of their seething, boisterous society. In the 19th century, American women joined clubs and supported the temperance movement, the abolition of slavery, and women's suffrage. And when they were not allowed to hold leadership positions or speak in mixed-gendered clubs, they formed their own organizations. Around the turn of the 20th century, women from across the nation joined organizations in very large numbers. They advocated for child labor laws, education reform, basic working conditions, and more. They also continued to champion voting rights. While these organizations were often segregated and made up of middle and upper class white women, poor women and women of color also formed similar organizations. They promoted similar causes, but also equally important ones like anti-lynching efforts. But what about conservation and preserving the great outdoors? Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir might be the poster children for the modern conservation movement, but as those old trail club photographs make clear, women played a crucial role in building and maintaining the early Appalachian Trail. To try to better understand how and why, we spoke with Gwen Luce, Vice President of the Appalachian Trail Museum and the author of We Were There Too, Pioneering Appalachian Trail Women. Gwen has spent years studying the role of women in the AT clubs. When they would have their club meetings, the women would really help with the committees. They're good organizers and recruiters. They would say, well, we need a committee for this. And they would take it upon themselves then to recruit the people. They also added that social element, especially like in the Potomac Club, they would have square dances. All of the clubs were trying to raise funds. They would have bake sales or yard sales. Or when they had a meeting, they would have some sort of little competition as part of the meeting. You know, put in a dollar to be a part of this little raffle or something. So they brought a, a whole different element. And as a result, 
things were a lot more fun and they had they had better ideas as to how to bond together as a club. But women didn't just add an element of socialization. They were out on the trail swinging axes, running saws, digging, cribbing, moving rocks and clearing brush, just like their male counterparts. We have women down there with their pink t-shirts, but they're covered with mud, in mud up above their ankles and they're, they're cleaning up this trail. When you look carefully through the photographs in the archives, you see images of women out on the trail with heavy tools, dirty, just like the men, doing the same labor. But just because women were enthusiastic trail maintainers, hikers, backpackers, and trail club members, that doesn't mean that traditional gender roles or expectations vanished out on the trail. We did find some of the early pictures of women helping. We have an excellent photograph of some women and they were cleaning out one of the shelters. It's a very domestic role. And they have the headscarves around them, and they have the mops and the brooms, you know. But nevertheless, it was hard work, and they were out in the middle of nowhere. One of the things that surprised me when I started looking more closely at the role of women in the trail clubs before World War II was the fact that some of the trail clubs instituted 50-50 rules to limit the number of women taking part in club activities. One such club was the Georgia Appalachian Trail Club. It's interesting you mentioned the Georgia Club because they were the ones who actually implemented a quota on the number of women because there were so many women interested in joining the Georgia ATC that they actually put a quota on there. They had to cap it because they didn't want it to become overrun by the women. The Potomac Appalachian Trail Club instituted a similar rule. It was decided at one of their board meetings that they were going to put a moratorium on women joining, no more women. For a while, they didn't, and didn't des designate how long this moratorium was going to go on, but they wanted to try and get their membership to as close as they could to 50-50, 50% men, 50% women. Some of that was because of the social activities that they were involved in, because they did a lot of square dancing. But what was happening was on these day-long and sometimes weekend-long excursions, more women were showing up to ride the bus to do those. And I think it's because the women wanted to make sure they got there because they didn't want to go out and do these things on their own. Even like one, two, or three women, they felt more comfortable meeting with the club and going out for the day or the weekend with the club. And so there were more women getting on the bus and doing these things. According to historian Amanda Regan at Clemson University, the fact that so many women wanted to engage in the kinds of challenging physical activities like hiking, backpacking, or trail work isn't surprising. In fact, Amanda says that the sort of exercise one might get as a trail club member fit nicely into an emerging interest in physical activity for women in the early decades of the 20th century. Women begin engaging in what today we would call very gentle stretching. They called it calisthenics. So it was lifting one or two pound weights that were shaped like bowling pins. They were called at the time Indian clubs, which has a very complicated history. And they would do essentially what we would describe as vigorous stretching. One of the things they never did or you didn't do, it was not approved of, was running because they were 
literally <laughs> afraid that your uterus might fall out. That particular fear gives you a sense for how little the medical profession actually understood about women's bodies at the time. Amanda explains that in the view of many doctors at the time, Women's bodies are meant to do the work of being a mother and a housewife, and not the work of men, which would have been oftentimes physical labor. And so their bodies were necessarily built differently. When we say expectations, that assumes that Americans understood the female body, which I don't think they did. <laughs> it sort of gets at the idea that the medical establishment and physical educators are still trying to understand the expectations of the female body themselves. Increasingly, women challenged the view that their bodies were incapable of vigorous group exercise. There's lots of evidence to suggest that women did what worked for them on a daily basis. And so if their passion was the trail and hiking the trail and helping maintain the trail, it doesn't surprise me that that's what they did. And joining an Appalachian Trail Club turned out to be a great way for women to participate in physical activity in a group setting. There are fantastic newspaper articles from the early 20th century that describe how you might use your broom as a dumbbell or, you know, um, how you might use the stairs to get a workout in. And in that scenario, it's a very individualized thing. But in terms of sports, it becomes much more of a group activity when you're talking about team sports. So things like basketball, baseball, swimming, especially in the early 20th century, it tended to be a group sport when you were swimming for exercise. In terms of hiking, there's long precedent for it being a group activity. At R2 Studios, we're on a mission to democratize history through podcasting. But making our shows for you requires a lot of investment. For every minute you heard on season two of The Green Tunnel, our team has spent countless hours researching in the archives, interviewing guests, writing scripts, and editing audio. Here's how you can help make season three of the show the best one yet. Please continue sharing our show on social media, recommending it to friends, and leaving a review on your favorite podcast app. Consider becoming an individual or corporate sponsor of an episode or even an entire season. Or make a direct investment through a gift to R2 Studios in any amount you can. Head to r2studios.org and click on Support Us to find out how. Thank you from all of us at the Green Tunnel Podcast. Gwen is currently working on an exhibition about pioneering trail maintainers for the Appalachian Trail Museum in Pine Grove Furnace, Pennsylvania. And one of the women she plans to feature is Madeline Fleming. Madeline really fits into the picture Amanda Regan describes. She was with the York Hiking Club early on in the 1930s, but she also worked with PATC to help get the Mountain Club of Maryland started. And I talked to a lot of people, and they always say the greatest things about Madeline Fleming, that you know she was really engaged in getting the trail on the ground in Pennsylvania, all the way down through Maryland, uh, West Virginia, and Virginia. But the only pictures I can find of her, she's dressed uh, very businesslike, standing next to her husband. 
not doing any trail work at the time. So we haven't connected the dots, but I do have some beautiful quotes by Madeline Fleming that I got from some books where she talks about joining different trail groups and working really, really hard with sore muscles and sore backs at the end of the day and how great she felt. As Gwen tells us in her book, women held many leadership roles in the early clubs, just not the roles that got them in front of cameras or mentioned in newspaper stories about the trail. In addition to their work on the trail, they organized events, held fundraisers, wrote the club newsletters, and did critical work in club offices. Women, including Mary Kilpatrick of the Philadelphia Trail Club, took on more and more leadership roles in their organizations, planning and leading group hikes and supervising maintenance trips. Mary also became the first woman to hike every step of the Appalachian Trail, a feat she accomplished as a section hiker in the 1930s. The trail clubs would not have been as successful as they were without their female members. At the same time, the existence of the clubs gave women easier access to the mountains, to hiking, and to camping. Beginning in the 1930s, and I think continuing even today to a certain extent, the clubs gave the women a structure. And if you wanted to participate, there would be information there that you could follow. In the early days, it would be all the way down to what bus to get on in the morning, what time to get on the bus, where the group was meeting, how they were getting to the meeting site, what to pack for the day, when you would be returning. There was all that structure. So they could do a big adventure in like the Shenandoahs or something, knew how to get ready for it, what was going to happen during the day. And they had a fairly good idea as to what time they would be back. So they could be adventurers, but it wasn't going to be crazy. And even if they would get lost, they would be lost together, not lost alone. And I think that the women really who gravitated toward this, they wanted that sense of adventure. And just like their male counterparts, they could use their involvement in the AT as a way to get away from the humdrum of their jobs. Many of these women were full-time workers, had secretarial jobs or were executive secretaries or were in decision-making positions. Some of them, you know, owned their own small companies, so they were their own bosses, but wanted on weekends to be in a different environment, away from the structured way that they were in the office place. They wanted to be more informal. They wanted to be able, in early days, they wanted to be able to wear bloomers. You know, that was important to some of them. I'm going to wear some bloomers and I'm going to put a pack on my back and I'm going to go hiking. I'm going to wear some old shoes and I'm going to go hiking. And that was important to them. In other words, the motivations of women in the trail clubs in the 1930s really weren't all that different from the motivations of women in the trail clubs today. The Green Tunnel is a production of R2 Studios at the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at George Mason University. Today's episode was produced by me. Jeanette Patrick and Jim Ambusky are the executive producers. We want to offer a big thank you to Sarah Middlefelt, Amanda Regan, and Gwen Luce for their insights into the experiences of women in the trail clubs. Original music for The Green Tunnel 
is performed by Scott Miller of Swoop, Virginia, and Andrew Small and Ashley Watkins of Floyd, Virginia. That's it for today and for Season 2 of The Green Tunnel. To help us keep making the world's best podcast about the Appalachian Trail, please go to our website, r2studios.org, and click the Support Us link. From there, you can make a donation of any amount to help us keep doing this work. I hope we'll see you out on the trail soon.